Well, except for the three years that I spent in seminary up in Massachusetts, I, I've lived my entire life here in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the little rival- rivalries that I would suggest exists here is between the two largest and most populated cities in the state, right? Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And this is, I would argue, this is kind of like a, a sibling rivalry. Each one feels like they want to get the upper hand on their brother or their sister, right? get the best of their own flesh and blood. I, I remember a number of years ago, I think I was still up in Massachusetts, um, it probably was like 2005, uh, when there was a chance that it was going to be the Steelers and Eagles, Eagles in the Super Bowl. And we were real excited about that because that would have been a great you know, showing for Pennsylvania. We don't have bad blood, per se. It's just rivalry, sibling rivalry. But what's ironic about that is Philadelphia, you've probably heard described as the city of brotherly love. And that's literally what Philadelphia means, love of brother. It comes from the Greek word philo, which is one of the words. The the Greeks had four different words for love. One of the words for love. And adelphos, which is the word for brother. So while love may be in the name, though, Philadelphia does have a tendency to carry a reputation for not, not always having uh, the, the nicest residents. In, in particular, uh, many different periodicals have consistently ranked the city of Philadelphia as near the top or at the top of some of the worst fans in, in sports. And again, this is the sibling rivalry that me as a Pittsburgher, I'm okay giving a little jab where I can. One of the best examples of this was in 1968 when Eagles fans, right, their football team, uh, booed and threw snowballs at Santa Claus, right? The team had started the season 0 and 11, and they were excited because the signature individual in that year's draft was O.J. Simpson, that they were like, we're going to be able to get O.J. But then the team started winning, and fans were upset. And during their, their annual Christmas show, Management of the team had hired a a Santa impersonator to entertain the crowds, but the guy never showed up. And so the the management surveyed the stands, and they found a guy, a fan, who was already dressed in Santa garb, so they grabbed him and decided to use him for the show instead. And I love the way CBS Sports describes what happened next. They said, I quote, It wasn't perfect. Olivo, the man that they got to replace Santa, was thin and Eagles fans didn't believe for a second that he was the real Santa. They didn't take it well. Olivo was booed, which is actually just how Eagles fans say hello, so fine. So add insult to injury, however, Eagles fans used their resources. Don't give Eagles fans resources. They pelted Olivo with snowballs in what might be the most infamous incident outside of Bottlegate for any fan base in the NFL. I don't know what Bottlegate is, but I know what the snowball incident is. Well, you know, y- you might say, what kind of town booze throws snowballs at St. Nick? Whether it be the opposing team or plenty of times their own players, right? Philadelphia, as a, as a sports town, can be a really hostile environment where the fans let their real feelings show with clarity. There, there's no presuppositions about it. Now, this morning... We're going to look at another city named Philadelphia, but this one from a few thousand years ago. But what these two cities had in common is this city also had a reputation for being an inhospitable place for those who were perceived to be outsiders, for those operating outside of the cultural norms. Now, this city was geographically close to Sardis, which we looked at last week, 
but it had much more in common with the city of Smyrna, which we looked at several weeks ago. Right, the Christians in Smyrna, you might remember if you were here, had a very contentious relationship with the Jewish community. I spent some time in that message describing Jesus' harsh words in the letter where he calls the Jewish community in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan. That's exactly what he says. And we're going to see that same phrase this week. And I'm not going to belabor that point. I'm not going to go into that all again when we get there. But if you missed it, May 1st, so I guess the beginning of the month, four weeks ago, uh, is when I gave that message. And so you can always, it's on the website. You can go listen to it um, to hear what I had to say about that. But there are some clear similarities that I'm going to point out as we go along between what's going on in Philadelphia and what's going on in Smyrna. So let's open up our, our Bibles, pull out our Bible apps, whatever you prefer, uh, and we'll look at Revelation chapter 3. So this is the map that we've been using geographically. Again, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor was what it was called. There's a zoomed-in version, right? That bottom left-hand corner is where John is writing from and you know, we, we started with Eph- Ephesus, we've been moving our way up to Pergamum, and then moving our way back down, we hit Philadelphia, we got one more week next week with Laodicea. But you could see, you could see how close Sardis and Philadelphia were, but there's, you know, more to the west, Smyrna is where they had a little bit more in common with what was actually going on in the city. So, hope you have had a chance to find the passage. Uh, why don't you follow along with me as I read? We're going to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we'll start where we have started each of the last few weeks with the descriptor of Jesus. He is described as having the key of David, something that can open doors and shut doors in a way that no one else can overrule. Right? What he opens stays open and what he shuts stays shut. Now, this language, I believe, is a clear reference to something that's kind of hidden in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 22. It's a lengthy passage. I'm not going to read it for you this morning. But if you, if you want to jot it down and go there on your own time, you're welcome. It's Isaiah 22, 15 to 25. But what the passage describes is a steward who is over 
and responsible for a household. But that steward has been found unworthy of his station. And so he is, he is brought down. He's tossed down. There's some vibrant language um, describing that, that descent. And in his place, the Lord elevates right, one of his servants named Eliakim. Eliakim is given the dress of this demoted steward. And verse 22 in this chapter echoes what we just read. I mean, the, the, you know, I'll read it, look at, look at uh, the passage in Revelation and see how it's almost verbatim at times. This is verse 22 of Isaiah 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So this characteristic of having the key of David was symbolically used in, in Scripture to denote authority. Right? And this descriptor now in our passage is highlighting Jesus. It's being applied to Jesus. So Jesus is not only, we often talk about him as the root of David, right? the descendant of David in that Davidic line of kings, but he also has authority of those who come and go into God's holy presence. Think of Jesus or, or you know, this, this steward who has the key is kind of like a bouncer standing at the door to the temple. So Jesus is not only the descendant of David, but he is that control valve determining who is able to get in to the residence of God. So keep that in mind because it's going to be relevant as we continue to understand the context of the letter. Right? That Jesus is the unique one that can give access that no one can deny. So let's move to the commendations, the positive things that Jesus says about his followers in Philadelphia. Now note, just like what we saw in Smyrna, this doesn't happen often in these letters, but there are no critiques. Right? Usually, in fact, what we saw last week with Sardis is that there really weren't any commendations, but there was a whole heck of a lot of stuff that Jesus was saying, You're, you guys are messing this up. But here, the, the believers, Jesus seems satisfied with their, their um, pursuit of him. He doesn't have anything negative to say. But Jesus says he knows their works, and he acknowledges that they have little power, right? The, the NIV translates it as that they just have a little strength. But even though they are the underdog, they have successfully stayed strong in the Lord. They've remained steadfast under the maltreatment that they have faced, Right, what follows in verse 9 is once again similar language to what we saw in Smyrna, that Jesus labels their opponents as being from the synagogue of Satan. So it's evident, as we read this, that there was, like in Smyrna, a contentious relationship between the Christians in the city and the Jewish community of Philadelphia. So look at verse 8. Jesus states that he has provided an open door that no one can shut. I remember, he, he holds the, the key of David. He is the one that has ultimate authority for entrance into God's temple. Now, this is important because what most scholars think is going on right here is that the Jewish community was barring Christians from worshiping God, participating in worship in the synagogue. I've shared this before, but Christianity in its earliest form, it spawned out of Judaism. 
Judaism, right? Jesus was Jewish. He was seen as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, their long-awaited Messiah. Paul, when he would go on his missionary journeys, the first place that he would always stop was the local synagogue because his heart, his desire, was to help his Jewish brethren connect the dots to see Jesus as the completion of their faith. And so as a result, many Christians likely tried to continue worshiping the Lord through the local synagogue because it was a continuation of their framework, of their worldview, of how they understood what it meant to worship God. Now, if that's the case, this encouragement makes sense, right? Just because the Jewish leaders are telling Christians that they were not welcome in the house of worship, Jesus is reiterating that it's not humanity who gets to decide, who gets to define who's in and who's out of God's kingdom, right? That Jesus is ultimately the authority on that. In John chapter 9, we see Jesus in action accomplishing this in in, in, in similar ways. Right. John chapter 9 begins with Jesus healing a man born blind. And, you know, this is uh, the, the passage where the disciples say, you know, who is it that sinned? Right? Was it this guy's parents? Was it this guy that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, you're, you're missing. Like this, you're asking the wrong questions. So he heals this guy. And the crowd say, man, nothing like this has ever been done before. And so they're kind of like wild. They're all riled up. So the Pharisees, you know, like, like good uh, church-going folks, good religious folks, they want answers. They want to investigate. So they bring the guy in and question him. They, they, they say, you, you weren't really born blind. And so they don't believe him, and they bring in the guy's parents to say, was this guy really blind? Again, unsatisfied with their responses, you know, they bring the guy back, and they're like, okay, so you were healed, but can you at least confirm that the guy who healed you was a sinner? And the guy, and, and the guy who was formerly blind was like, I, I, I don't know what you want me to say. He's like, I can't speak to that, but all I know is I was blind, I was born that way, and now I see. And verse 34 at the end of that chapter basically says that the Pharisees cast him out. They didn't like what he had to say, so they excommunicated him from the center of worship in the town. Jesus hears that he has been thrown out, and what does he do? He goes to find him, and what follows leading into chapter 10, is the I am statement where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. In essence, what has happened is that Jesus has taken the man who was tossed out on the street by the religious folks and has gone to bring him into his own flock, right? His own fold of which he is the shepherd. Mankind, humanity in that moment, told this guy that he was unworthy have access to God. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you authority that they can't say anything about. Now much of the rest, going back to our text, much of the rest of the commendations deal with turning what was expected upside down. Right? The, the Jewish leaders in the city, for instance, thought they were guarding the sanctity of worship by Yahweh. They're casting out, in their mind, were these heretical Christians. You know, but Jesus is saying they're not the arbiters of who's in and who's out that he is. But you see another contrast at the end of verse 9. The Jewish leaders are going to come and bow down before the Christians. It says, learning that God had loved this people, his people, through Christ. Now, this would be a complete reversal from what the Jewish leaders would expect. Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, if you're following along on the Bible reading plan, we will read Isaiah 60, I believe, this week. And it is an awesome 
passage. There's a, a book, blanking on the guy's name, but it's called When the Saints Go Marching In. Uh, and it is a phenomenal look at Isaiah 60 and the way in which all these nations bring their cultural goods before God. Right? All the things that they were known for, right? these pagan cultures are coming to worship God through that. Again, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but it's a f- fantastic book. Richard Mao, that's the, the author's name. But Isaiah 60 describes this kind of eschatological, this final kingdom of God. Right? As I said, where, where the nations are bringing their very best for the honor and glory of God. But verse 14 says this, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. And this isn't the only place in the Old Testament that says that. There were plenty of places where it describes the same thing, thing that Israel, right, this very, very small country in the ancient Near East, all often was oppressed by their neighbors, whether it be the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, continued through history. Right? They've been oppressed, but they've been known by God, and that God is going to validate them in the end. They have been humbled, but eventually it is those, those haughty oppressors that are going to be brought low, that are going to be the humbled ones. Now, in our context, in, in Philadelphia, in, in Revelation 3, it is the oppressed Christians who are going to experience that validation, where the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles bow down before them. I don't think it's accidental that there is a link between these two communities, right? the, the oppressed community in Isaiah and the oppressed community in Revelation. Now, before we get to comfort, I want to point out one more thing that Jesus encourages them. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on just a little bit longer. And then he says, stand firm so that no one is going to steal your crown. Again, this is one of the, the, the things I think is awesome about the God-inspired scriptures because there's so much where you can interpret through the lens of what it said before. Right? Because again, we have another link with Smyrna. Right? Smyrna in Revelation 2, verse 10, uses similar language of the comfort. Right? That the one who overcomes, Jesus says that he will give them a crown of life. You might remember I was talking about that, that was a very you know, culturally relevant symbol because the, the um, not the temple, but kind of like the, the, the main um, building, administrative building there in Smyrna was shaped like a crown. So that was a very symbolic uh, sign for them. But again, there's a, just yet another parallel with Smyrna, right? the crown of life. All right, so let's move to, to the comfort. The Christians have been faithful. They have guarded the name of Jesus. And Jesus promises that they get to be a part of his temple. Note that everything in this, this letter deals with the ability, access to worship God. Earlier we saw that Jesus was the bearer of the keys, that he was the gatekeeper. He was the one that welcomed them into God's heavenly kingdom. But here we see that promise escalated, right? That they not only have access to it, but they get to be a part of it. They are fashioned into pillars. They're the building materials to them. Right? The Christians had been expelled. They had been excommunicated from the local synagogue. But Jesus reminds them that they are still part of God's people. Still have the doors to the temple wide open to them. No one can shut. And they get to be a part of the building materials. Jesus continues to open the gates wider and wider. Jesus creates pathways, access 
far beyond what anyone would have thought at the time. Let me give you an example of how we see this in Scripture. Now, wealthier households in antiquity, in the ancient world, it was very common to have servants who were eunuchs. A a eunuch is a servant, it was a man who had been castrated. And it was done for political reasons, because men without genitalia were not considered a threat in the ancient world. No one is going to rally to the cause of a eunuch trying to stage a coup. It was a way to preserve power. Now, the law of God, specifically Deuteronomy 23.1, God forbids eunuchs from entering into his temple. Under the old covenant, there was a very high value placed on perfection, or at least the symbolism of perfection, right? Things being free from blemish. When you offered an animal in sacrifice, it had to be free from blemish, right? You couldn't, you couldn't offer to God something that was broken or marred. Under the Uh, Yeah, under that old covenant, there was this high value. And so there were always markers that kept others out. Even the temple, the the, the second temple, uh, you know, Solomon built a temple that you see in Scripture that was destroyed, and then kind of King Herod and others built a temple uh, that would have been pretty impressive in Jesus' day. But even in that temple, there was space that was barred that Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish, was not allowed into it. Even Hebrew women had less access to some of the holy places in that temple than Hebrew men. Now, this is one of the reasons that we see in the scriptures, in the gospels, Jesus cleansed the temple, right? That time where he's like flipping tables and, he, you know, driving the vendors, the market vendors out, forming a, a, a whip out of rope. And the reason is because, I mean, yeah, there were probably some corruption in there too, but I don't think that was the ultimate reason. It's not that they were just like price gouging. The issue is that they were trading their wares. They were packing in the court of the Gentiles. They were cluttering the one place that he gave Gentiles, that he gave anyone who was not Jewish, who was not part of God's chosen people. They, They were cluttering this place that gave them some access to the presence of God in the temple. And what does Jesus say when he does this? In Mark's gospel, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus there, when he says that, he is quoting Isaiah 56, which we actually just read last week, if you've been following along in the Bible reading plan. Actually, the cleansing of the temple, there was Mark 11, which we read last week as well. So if you've been following with the Bible reading plan, there's kind of connections all over the place. But let me read to you the verses that directly precede what Jesus is quoting. So this is Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 6. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So that's speaking about Gentiles. Someone who's, uh, the, the language they used in the ancient world was God-fearers. These were people who were not born Jewish, so they didn't, you know, have access to God by birth, but they were, you know, they had converted to Judaism, to being an Israelite. But again, still had kind of still second class a little bit with their access. And then it continues. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. Listen to what he says next. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than my sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Again, that language is eerily familiar with what we have just been discussing. Deuteronomy 23 says eunuchs cannot enter the temple, but here he's saying that eunuchs are going to have some kind of place within his walls, a pillar, a monument with an inscription on it. That sounds like the comfort that Jesus says in Revelation 3, that to those who overcome will be a pillar with the name of God, the name of the city inscribed upon it. These previous constraints that kept people out of God's space are being removed. God is preparing a place in his temple for folks that were always, that were always on the outside looking in. Jesus provides hope. He's the great leverer, leveler. By putting our trust in him, there are no more culturally or religiously crafted barriers that separate people. Again, the important piece is when we are found in Christ. That's where Jesus levels the playing field. We, we no longer should tolerate these, these uh, kind of barriers that elevate some and diminish others. Faith in Jesus Christ means that regardless of our, you know, and you could throw out a random non-discriminatory clause, right? regardless of our race, our sex, our national origin, our sexual orientation, we have access to God through Jesus. We can be found at home in his courts. So what does this mean for us in Pittsburgh in 2022? Right? How do we connect the dots from Philadelphia, 95 AD? So in Philadelphia, it was the Christians who were the minority. They were being oppressed. They were excluded by the more dominant Jewish community in the city. Now in many ways, for Christians in America, the shoe's on the other foot because we're not the oppressed minority. Oftentimes, it is the opposite, that we are the majority culture, and we try to protect our house of worship, which is a noble cause, but in doing so, we often will exclude others. So if the Christians in 95 AD were the victims, I would say, at least in recent history, and probably going back several centuries, Christians have been the perpetrators at excluding others. The question that I want us to think about is who are we attempting to exclude from the kingdom of God? Who are the people that we look down upon and have determined right, on God's behalf that they don't make the cut, that they, that they don't make the cut to have access to his presence? I know I go to this well a lot, but I do think it's an important one in our society. Right, in the last several generations of the church, one of those markers was race. Martin Luther King Jr. famously stated that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in the nation. White folks tended to go to white churches and black folks tended to go to black churches. Now, many of those black-led churches didn't come about because people of color wanted to worship with others who looked like them. It's not how they were formed. The truth was, during Jim Crow, brown and black individuals were not welcome in white churches. So in order for them to have pathways to worship God, these faithful disciples, these faithful servants of Jesus formed their own churches, formed their own denominations, 
right? The, 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 the segregation that still exists in the church today, again, maybe not intentional segregation, but the fact that there is such, you know, there, there's a white Baptist church down the street here and a black Baptist church down the street there, and oftentimes there, there's not much intermixing between them, right? That is the, a byproduct of this past exclusion. Now, you might say this, uh, this is ancient history, but I, you know, I, just, I was talking with a guy this week who was sharing his experience. He was going to a church in Washington County. And the pastor of that church, uh, within the last generation, right, so it wasn't like in the last 10 years, but probably I'd say last 20 or 30 years, was still teaching that interracial marriage was a sin. We might think that we're over racism in the church, but it's still very much alive in many places. Right? We have a tendency to use external metrics to decide who we think makes the cut. But you know, race isn't the only thing that we try to create barriers over. It could be anything. It could be their appearance. It could be what someone wears to church, what they look like, what they smell like. Right? Are we open to individuals who wrestle with substance abuse within our walls? Right? Are, or are our are, are church church is open to people who might have made different decisions than us, especially if those decisions has violated, you know, standards of morality that we've established. Growing up, my, my family went to a Presbyterian church, and then uh, my first year of high school, my parents got divorced. And soon after that, we stopped going to church. Now, was it because my mom didn't want to go? That wasn't it. But it's because the church started to look down on her for her failed ma marriage, right? That divorce was seen as a mark of sin in her life. And yes, Jesus has plenty to say about divorce, remarriage, all those kinds of things in, in scriptures, uh, uh, labeling it at times as sin. But it's not up to the congregation of that church to, to kind of continue to move her to the peripheries in that community. Because Jesus also had a lot to say about grace. He usually led with grace, and then from there, you know, encouraged people to, to change lifestyles. The grace that Jesus showed others was radical, and I would argue that it ought to be radical to us as well, as we welcome others into the presence of the Lord. Right? You and I are not the gatekeepers of who should be granted access to God. This passage so shows us that it is Jesus who provides the entrance into the temple. He provides entrance into the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem. Now, I was thinking about trying to connect this with us, who we are as a church. And here at Restoration Community Church, <clears throat> it's our desire to have a, have a culture that moves through these elements in this order. Belonging, believing, becoming. Belong, believe, become. Belonging means that someone is able to show up to worship, or even just show up what it means to, to explore how to connect with God in a way that they feel welcomed. Not everybody who walks through that door is going to have an understanding of the gospel, but we want to welcome them into it. The, what's the, the phrase? Um, you know, the church is not a, a haven for saints. Saints, saints, what's a saint? Haven for saints, but it's meant to be a hospital for sinners. All of us have experienced grace by some manner. 
I'm, I'm a big fan of one of the newer songs by Crowder. They play it on Caleb every now and then called In the House. And it really reflects, it highlights this ethic that we want to be a welcoming environment for every single person who walks through our doors. Now, it's essential that we get this order right. It's essential that people have space to belong before they believe. I've been a part of many churches where the reverse has been true. That you needed to dress the way that we dress, or you need to think the way that we think before you feel welcome and included in the community. That's not how we want to do things here. You know, after belonging, belonging must precede belief, but we would hope that people, you know, if, if you want to come week in and week out, you feel hospitable, you feel welcomed, right, that they have an encounter with Jesus, that belief does follow, right, so that, that, that it's, it's a place where we can connect, make that, that vertical relationship with Jesus Christ. And becoming is the process of sanctification, where we become more and more like the image of Jesus through our thoughts and our behaviors and our actions. But it doesn't start there. It ends there. Right? It begins with the ethic of belonging, of hospitality, where we are not a bouncer banning entry to those who we deem unworthy. That's Jesus' job. But instead, we are more like the concierge, the one who is ready to greet the guests, help them make the most of their visits, answer questions that they might have. This week, I want us to think about a couple of questions to help us process this in our lives. So the first is this. We want to have belonging. I know that before the pandemic, one of the things that I really was excited about is that we had individuals who were coming that were often on the periphery of faith. People who may have gone to church, been raised in the church, but hadn't been to church in 10 years. And we provided a, a home for them to have this reconnection with God. And that's what we still want to be about. And so think of someone. If, think if there's someone in your paths that you cross who you can invite to belong that this can be a place where they feel supported, they feel uplifted, that they can hear the, the message that God cares for them and make a plan to extend that invitation. Secondly, do you have any deal breakers that you believe should prohibit someone from participating in the worship of God? Right? Is there anything that you would say is off limits? You know, I'm not looking for like a right or wrong answer in this. This is just for us to reflect, to process. As we come face to face with the extravagant, extravagant grace of Jesus, are there places that we would say, ah, that's a deal breaker? And then just why? Why do we feel that way? Think about that. I kind of identify, name those feelings and try to figure out where the root of them comes from. And lastly, read and meditate, not meditated, Read and meditate on Galatians 3, 23 to 29. That's a passage that says that in Christ right there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. It talks about Jesus as the great leveler. And then ask yourself, why do you think this was such a revolutionary perspective for the early church? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are grateful that you have called us, called us out of darkness, called us into your light, acknowledging that none of us was perfect, 
none of us was clean or unmarred when you called us, but that we all were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. Lord, as we have been raised to this new life in Jesus Christ, may we not have this ethic of superiority. May we not look down upon others who maybe were where we were, but we forgot where we came from. Lord, may we be a place of radical grace and hospitality to outsiders. May we be removing those barriers that prohibit people from entering into your presence. Lord, even now, may you bring people to mind or create conversations in our lives, in our, in our life this week, that we can invite others to be a part of this. Lord, there's a lot of folks out there who feel like things are going well enough for them. But you promise abundant life in you, Jesus. You promise us more. May we not just settle for the good or the okay, but may we pursue that good life that you've called us to. Lord, may we be a place of radical hospitality and inclusion. In Jesus' name, amen.